So this is part two of our series, Some Assembly Required. This is a series that looks at relationships, but more specifically, the relationships of marriage. And if you were with us last week, uh, we kind of started out the series in a kind of a fun way. We did the not-so-newlywed game, and uh, we discovered that um, we only had three couples up here. Two couples that have been married quite a while, one couple that has not been married yet, and ironically, they're the ones who won the game. We found out that Faye and Terry go to some sketchy movies. Uh, we found out that Cameron's never seen a Disney movie in his life. And, and I felt bad because part of this series is to give you the tools that you need to strengthen your marriage. And I feel like we actually, for a, couple, for a couple of those couples, we actually gave them some tools to actually tear their marriage down a little bit. As they, they, had some, they, they may have had some interesting conversations at home and on the way, on the way home. And so I thought, that's not fair that we did that to them. So I thought, let's do that to everybody. So <laughs> this morning, uh, as you came in, Lionel and Shirley probably gave you one of these two cards, or gave you both of these cards. It's a check mark and an X. So we're going to play a little game with everybody. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put a statement up on the screen, and you're going to hold up whether you agree with that statement or you disagree. Okay, so here goes. First question. If you tell your husband not to get you anything for Valentine's Day, can you be mad when he doesn't get you anything? Agree or disagree? Go ahead, hold it up. Have Bruce explain it to you, Mary. <laughs> okay, all right, all right. We got a mixture. We got a mixture, even amongst certain couples. Okay, all right, next question. Next question, do you agree or disagree? If your wife loves an outfit that isn't flattering, should you tell her? Agree or disagree? <laughs> okay, so we got some agrees. We got some agrees. We got some disagrees. Xavier's already like, I don't know. No, that's a bad idea. It's a bad idea. All right, all right. Okay, last one, last one. Is it okay to tell your spouse that someone else is good looking? Okay, we got some, we got a mixture across here. We got a mixture. We got a mixture, all right. Okay, awesome. All right. Now, as we go about this message, this is what I call, this is what I call an elbows in message. What I mean by that is there is a tendency as you're going through this message, especially if you're sitting with your significant other, to be doing a little bit of this, okay? Elbows in, elbows in. This is for you, okay? You're only responsible for you. You're not responsible for him. You're not responsible for her. This is for you. But this morning as we look at part two, our culture has defined marriage as a contract. Here's what a contract is. Entering into a legally and binding agreement. In other words, a contract allows us to protect our rights and limit our responsibilities. Here's what this looks like. How many of you have ever had to break a contract? Maybe it's a, maybe it's a lease on a car. Maybe it's a, uh, an apartment. Maybe it's a mortgage. Maybe it's a cell phone agreement. How many, of you ever, how many people, put, raise your hand, ever had to break, break a contract? Okay, all right. All right. Uh, I recently helped Jen break her cell phone agreement because she had this two-year contract on her cell phone, and she had a little bit over a year left, and then her work gave her a cell phone that they were paying for. 
So for a little while, she was walking around with two cell phones, like one in each hand kind of thing, and not really, but she had two cell phones, and it, and it actually kind of got, it kind of got a little bit annoying for her. She's like, this is crazy. I'm paying a monthly fee for a phone, and I don't need these two phones. I should amalgamate them into one. So we started to do the math. We started to look into the fine print of the cell phone agreement. And in the fine print of the agreement, it showed that you could break the contract, but you had to pay a certain amount of money per month that you had left on the contract. So then you start to do a little bit of the math and figure out that if we paid the fee and then sold the phone and we weighed that against how much it would cost to continue to pay the monthly plan that she had, is it worth it? And we decided, yeah, it actually was worth it. We'd be better off just, just getting rid of it. So we did. But in the contract, there's a two-way agreement. The phone company is providing a service for you. And the guarantee is that they will, service during, they will give you service during the entire term of your contract. While we guarantee that during the, the contract, we will pay our end for that service. And both, in both cases, both parties are protecting their end of the agreement. But when we stand at the altar and say, I do, we don't really look at it that way. Or at least we shouldn't. We don't say, for better or worse, as long as it's better... We don't say, in sickness and health, as long as you stay healthy. We don't say, for richer or poorer, as long as the bank account stays at this level. But one thinks to themselves that there, when, when you're standing there, you think to yourself, there are conditions on marriage. Many of us actually believe that. If we're honest, we think to ourselves that marriage is a bit of a contract. As long as he keeps me happy, as long as she meets my needs, then we'll be fine. It'll all be fine. But the problem is, that's not the biblical understanding of marriage. I read a couple of years ago that Australia was thinking about putting out, considering a relationship contract. And the way it works is that you sign on, when you get married, you sign on for a 10-year term. Okay? So at the end of 10 years, you're, you're basically, your contract comes up for renewal. So at the end of 10 years, if you decide, eh, this isn't going so well, you're allowed to get out of your contract without having to go through all the expensive lawyer fees and all the ugly divorce. You've got this 10-year mark where you can re either you can renew the contract or you can stay in it, or, or you can get out of it. And if one of the choose parties chose not to resign, only one, the marriage was dissolved. Now, what, what kind of messed up idea is this? I mean, I watch this happen all the time in sports player signs a five-year contract, and they sign a contract for a lot of money. And, and sometimes they sign that contract, and all of a sudden they start playing terrible. And then as it's coming to an end in the fifth year, when they know the contract's coming up for renewal, all of a sudden they start playing better. All of a sudden they put more effort in. All of a sudden, when they know that there's, they want to re-sign and the, the next contract is going to be valuable, all of a sudden they become valuable. Could you imagine if that, that happened in marriage? If we had a 10-year contract, and he's like an absolute bum all for the first nine years, like does nothing, lays around, and then all of a sudden in year 10, he knows the, the contract's coming up for renewal. All of a sudden, he's buying flowers. He, he's, he's taking you out for dinner. He's, all of a sudden, he's like, ah, I got the contract's coming up for renewal. I better put in some effort. That's kind of messed up. What kind of culture believes that marriage is a contract? Well, if you see marriage as this, a contract, 
then it means I'm going, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to limit my responsibilities and protect my rights. But that's not what God had intended. God created marriage to be something beautiful, full of love, passion, a dash of grace, mercy. God's foundation isn't a contract. God's foundation is a covenant. A contract protects your rights. A covenant is where we give up our rights. In a contract, the idea is, what is the least I have to do to get the most amount of benefit? A covenant is different. Covenant is a unique word. It is, when you think of covenant, you might actually think of something biblical. But the, word old, the Old Testament word for covenant actually means to cut. A covenant requires something to be cut. In the Old Testament, New Testament, in a marriage ceremony, part of the ceremony would often involve taking an animal and cutting it in half. And during your marriage ceremony, it would involve taking this animal, cutting it in half, and having the couple, the happy couple, walk through the middle of the separated carcass. Now, why would you do that? Well, it was symbolic. It was saying to everyone, if we break this covenant, if we break this covenant that we're making before God, may we be like these animals that are separated. I think we should bring that back. I might talk to Morgan and Denise, see, uh, maybe, I could, maybe during their wedding ceremony, put a, half a cow here, half a cow on this side. People will talk about it. But a wedding was supposed to be meant to be holy and sacred. It wasn't just the signing of a contract. It wasn't just going to the justice of peace and signing a piece of paper. A God-honoring marriage was a covenant where you don't fight for your rights, you give up your rights. A covenant is a place where you aren't looking to limit your responsibilities. You're looking to pick up responsibilities and do what God has called you to do, to be who God has called you to be in marriage. We're going to look at, look at this area this morning. What areas... where we have to give up rights, and what areas where do we pick up responsibilities? To do this, we're going to start in the Old Testament, and then we're going to end in the New Testament. So what what are the rights you need to give up to experience the most God-honoring marriage or relationship? In Genesis chapter 1, it says that man was created, and it refers to man being made out of dirt. The Hebrew word for earth or dirt is adama. The first man, Adam, literally means made out of earth or dirt. And so God breathes life into Adam, and God creates the first human being. In Genesis 2, it says Adam had no suitable helper or no suitable partner in this journey that we call life. And so God has this idea to create someone for Adam. And he could have created another person in the same way that he created Adam, but instead he chose to do it a different way. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 20 is where we're going to turn. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If not, it's going to be on the screen here right behind me, and you can follow along. Genesis chapter 2. If you don't know where Genesis is, it's the first first book, okay? First book, chapter 2, verse 20, says this. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. This is the first covenant. This is where we see the first cut, the shedding of blood. And it's interesting to note 
that God institutes marriage before sin ever enters into the world. Verse 22 says, Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken, and out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken, taken out of man. Which is sort of funny because Adam goes from the bachelor life. You know, he's kind of laying around. He gets the remote for most of, that, most of that time, right? He's probably eating pizza pockets every meal. And then all of a sudden, he goes from the bachelor life to he sees Eve, and he becomes a poet all of a sudden, right? He's like, this is my bone of bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman man, because he probably saw her. He was like, whoa, man. And then verse 24 says this. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now, this verse 25 can be taken at face, face value, because they were, in fact, they had no clothes. But it meant so much more. They had no shame. They were vulnerable with each other, and there was literally nothing between them. Now, looking at this verse if you're truly going to be vulnerable and available or relationally naked with each other, there are some things you're going to need to check at the door. The first one is this. Here's your right, so you're going to have to check. The right of priority. When you were living the single life, there's a good chance that your world revolves slightly around you and just you. You decided when you did things, you decided when you went to bed, you decided, like, everything that you did, the only person you had to worry about was you, how it affected you. But the moment you get married, you begin to understand, or you should understand, this principle that someone else gets to be first. If you grew up in church, you were likely taught that God comes first in your life, which is true. But one of the ways you put God first in your life is that you put your spouse the gift from God ahead of you in the pecking order. So that means every decision you make, you consider your spouse's need, not just your own. So that means if there's a career opportunity that comes my way, and it pays really, really well, but it means I'm going to be gone a long time, it means that it's going to put some strain on my marriage, it, it, it could be a hobby that I'm involved in, anything that's going to put a strain or a separation between me and Jen... I've got, I'm going to turn down. I pass. I gladly pass because it's not worth it. Why? Because she's my priority. No longer is this life all about me. I value her above me. Here's another example. This one's not so obvious. After you have kids, many homes become child-centered homes. When you were first married, you spent so much time together. It was all about you and your relationship and cultivating that. But then kids come. And it's awesome, don't get me wrong. Like, being a father is one of the greatest joys of my life. We did everything we could for our kids. But the problem with neglecting the relationship for the worthy cause of parenting is the kids eventually leave. They eventually go. Jen and I are in that spot right now. It's weird, because Mason's off to university, and Janelle's currently accepting, getting college acceptance and university acceptance letters right now for September. And soon enough, it'll be just Jen and I, the way it all started. (laughs) 
kids, our kids, I mean, we love our kids. We do anything for our kids. But there were times where we would take vacations, just the two of us, for a week or a weekend. And we had to make it about us because we knew we were coming to this day. And I've seen it time and time again, relationships where the kids were the glue that held everything together. And when the kids left, the whole thing crumbled. Because they found themselves in a house alone, looking at the other person going, I don't, I don't recognize you. I, I don't know where I stand. And Jen and I never wanted that. And I, here's the other side of it. I think it's important that your kids see a strong relationship where you prioritize each other. They see how much you value each other. We often think that if we don't prioritize the kids above everything, they're going to feel like they're not valued. But you can place high value on your children and still prioritize your relationship in marriage. In fact, I think the kids benefit in their future relationships when they see it play out in yours. The second right that you give up is this, the right of ownership. Before the marriage, everything you have, everything you own is yours. But after you're married, married, everything is shared. This can be the source of many disagreements and many arguments in a household, especially if one person is the breadwinner and the other person stays home with the kids or they take a part-time job to be at home more. If you, if you don't see the relationship as co-ownership, you find yourself saying things like, I don't understand why she's spending all the money that I make. I, I don't understand. The, the, that's, that's mine. Why, why, is she, why is she taking that? It's my stuff. It's my car. It's my TV. It's my room. When you get married, you give up ownership. When you get married, it's not no longer it's mine. It's ours. Everything we have, our time is shared. Our finances are shared. We're on the same team. I know some families that do split checkings accounts. He has his own money. She has her own money. She has her own account. He has his own account. And it gets really weird when you go out for supper with them because all of a sudden they're like, they start arguing like right in front of you, who's paying for the meal? It's like, you paid for it last time or I paid for it last time. They, and they have this weird conversation. And maybe you've got, maybe you have that for a reason, but I, I tend to think it sends a wrong message because everything you have is shared. I mean, in, our, in our, our situation, we have a shared checkings account and everything that we have is shared. Now, Jen works for a bank she might have some secret uh, accounts that I don't know about. It's very possible. But everything is shared. We'd want it no other way. Again, that means your time. That means your energy. That means your finances. It even means your bodies. In fact, the Bible speaks directly to this. This is Paul talking in 1 Corinthians 7. He says this. He says, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. Which admittedly, that feels weird when you read that right away. Right? It feels, it feels a little bit weird. Guys are thinking, well, that's my new life verse right there. I'm putting that one in my wallet. Except, the verse doesn't end there. In the exact opposite, later on, it says, in the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. And yes, while it means what you think it means, it's so much more. It also means she needs help with something, 
get up and help her. If she needs your height to get something, if she needs to open the pickle jar and she can't, help her. Because it's not your body, it's hers. If your body is shared, think of all the ways this applies to you. It applies to your work, it applies to your energy, it applies to your sexuality, but your body is now co-owned by your spouse. So rather than use it for you, you use it to serve them. You use it to honor your significant other. So in a relationship, I choose to give up the right to priority and ownership. The third one is this, the right of privacy. When you're dating, you sort of hide some of the areas that you think they maybe won't like. I remember when Jen and I started dating, we really came from different worlds. Like for Jenna, Sunday morning from the time she was born always was in church. Not for me. I mean, there was a little bit of church sprinkled here and there as I grew up. But if there was any sort of activity or routine on a Sunday, it was this. My family would always go to the horse races. Now, I don't want to paint a picture of a fa- my family that gambled heavily. For us, it was a day out in the sun. We didn't go to church, so it was a day where our whole family was together, my brother, sister, my parents. It would be a day in the sun. My parents would maybe put $2 on a race, and so us kids, just, we just loved to watch the horses run and cheer them on. But as we got a little bit older, as I became a teenager, my parents would actually put a $2 bet on a horse for us, and then we'd really cheer for one of them to win. So I remember one of the first times I picked up Jen when we were dating in my car. And as I went to uh, let her into my car, I noticed on the front seat was a horse racing program that had all the odds and stuff like that. And I grabbed it quickly and I threw it into the back seat because I didn't want her to see that part. And in any relationship, you want to put your best face forward. We don't want to scare them off. But that, and that's why generally with students and young adults, I would usually say when you're dating someone, you should probably try to date that person for two years before you even think about popping the question. Because in two years, you will have pulled back all the layers of him or her. And if you still like what you see, even after he does that weird annoying thing when he eats, or even after she makes that noise with her nose when she laughs, things that other people find annoying. If you still look at that person, you think, man, I love her still, then you're probably good. That's probably good going forward. But when when you get married, your goal should be for your spouse to know you as close as possible. I give up my right to privacy. For me to feel truly close, I have to let her into my past, my shame, my secrets, and that's tough. It's sometimes, it's actually quite painful. But if you have full access to each other, relationally naked, you can be closer to each other than ever before. That means my wife knows all my passwords for my phone, my email, my social media accounts. I have nothing to hide. And the same goes for her with me. Now, let me just, let me be real for a second. This place of complete transparency and honesty is a journey. It's a journey. It requires some digging. It requires some tough conversations. And I don't give this picture that we're two people who've got it all together. We figured it out on day one. We're still working on this and being completely connected and honestly connected in a relationship 
But it's something I think couples have to work on every day, probably until they're dead. But the reward of knowing each other on an intimate level, with no secrets, relationally naked, is something worth working towards. Now, we've looked at the rights you laid down. I want you to look at the responsibilities you pick up. And to do that, we're going to look at a passage in Ephesians 5.22. It says this, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Now, before we jump into this, let me say this. This passage right here has been abused. It's been abused by churches. It's been abused by pastors for generations, and it has to stop. This verse is not to justify a man controlling a woman. This does not mean that a man goes to a woman and says, hey, get my food on the table now. It's chauvinistic, and it's been used for no good for a long time. Verse 23 says this, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. You see, we get in trouble when we stop right here, because this is what happens. But if you actually start to read through this, three verses are aimed at wives, eight verses are aimed at husbands. And I think there's some significance to that in responsibility. Because it says this, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy. This whole power struggle of submitting becomes less of an issue when the man loves his wife the way Jesus loved the church. It looks less like submission for a wife and more like unity. If you as a man love her like Jesus loved the church. Jesus gave his life for the church. Jesus gave his life for you before you were even born. Husbands, what would it look like if when you came home, you're the one that brought peace and grace into the home? What would it look like if you walked in the door each day and you were looking, how can I be a blessing? How can I meet the needs of her today? We look at submission as, you need to do what I say. But biblical submission is amazing. We talked about this last week. This is where two people are putting each other's needs before their own. And it's like a race to see who gets to the bottom, who can value each other first. This verse goes on to say this. Cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. As, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. You see, you take care of your body. You work on it. You know, you clean your body. You feed your body. You try to exercise. In the same way, it's your responsibility, husbands, to make sure your wife's needs are taken care of. This sounds a lot less like, woman, get me a sandwich. This sounds a lot more like somebody who cares about someone else. Verse 29. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So let's look at this. If there's rights you have to give up, there's also responsibilities you need to pick up. So for a marriage to be strong, here's the responsibilities you need to pick up. Number one, love unconditionally which you're thinking, okay, 
Of course. That's like entry-level marriage prep. But ask yourself, are there conditions to your love? Are there conditions to your love? When you said for better or worse, did you mean it? What if you found out he's got a gambling addiction? What if you found out she's been hiding a pain medication addiction that you didn't know about? Will you stick with him? Will you stick with her? Will you allow them to get better? Is it truly for better or for worse? What is the condition of your love? Well, there really shouldn't be a condition of your love. There shouldn't be a condition on for better or for worse. There shouldn't be a condition on for sicker or better. There shouldn't be a condition on richer or poorer. The only condition should be death till us part. Now, some of you are thinking this. What about abuse? He's abusing me, and he's hiding behind this vow or this Bible verse, and I'm trapped. There's no excuse. Because if you're being harmed in any way, you need to get help. This, this verse, you cannot hide behind this. You cannot hide behind this. If you're, getting, if you're being abused, that has to stop, and you need to get help. But there are other times where a marriage hits a bump, and one spouse decides, well, I'm leaving because this isn't what I signed up for. And right in the moment where he or she needs you the most, the one spouse leaves. If you're going to be part of a godly, loving relationship, you need to love unconditionally. The second one is this. You need to honor respectfully. See, the word honor literally means to add value to. Let me come at this as a standpoint of a husband. The number, number one thing that I see that wives do that devastate their husbands is when they dishonor them privately and publicly. Ladies, you have no idea how much your words weigh. Men gravitate to places of honor. It might be the reason why he stays at work longer or, wants, or he's excited about going to work or he, he likes being on the, the golf course because maybe it's the only place he hears, good job or great shot. For some men, they're constantly reminded how they need to be better, how, how they need to do better. Here's some ways that you can improve. And then when he tries something, they cut the legs out from under him. And it's never good enough. I'm so blessed to have a wife that protects my honor. I can legitimately tell you in 20 years of marriage, I have never heard her poorly talk to me to others. Never, never talk down I've caught her many times posting on Facebook. When I do something nice for her, she'll, she'll honor me by posting something on Facebook. And I am so fortunate that she doesn't post on Facebook the times I messed up because that would be a really bad ratio. But honor means I've got your back. When you fail, I'm going to encourage you to get up and try again. It means you'll have no louder voice on the sideline cheering you on than me. That means that person is in your corner no matter what. And it goes both ways, men, because we love to be praised. I mean, there's nothing sweeter to the ear than when my wife praises me for something or tells me that she's proud of me. There's nothing sweeter. But she needs to hear it too, men. We love to hear it, but we struggle sometimes to say it. She needs to hear that you're proud of her. She needs to hear that you've got her back no matter what. When she takes a risk and she does something or she messes up, you're right there. Instead of scolding her, you're there to encourage her. 
because I love you unconditionally and I honor you respectfully. The third and last one is this. I'm going to ask the worship team to join me. The third and last one is this. We submit mutually. We read the earlier verses in Ephesians 5. We read through those verses, but I skipped the first verse. In Ephesians 5.21, it says this. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is true in any relationship, but let's look at marriage. When you come to that part that says, wives, submit to your husbands, it seems a little less offensive when you understand that he would give his life for you, that he's racing you to put you first in your needs. See, in a contract, I'm trying to get all the benefit I can while giving up as few responsibilities as I have to. In a covenant, I want to love unconditionally. I want to honor respectfully. I want to submit mutually. All the while, honoring God with our relationship. When you take those three things and you have two people working at the same time, working towards that goal, who wouldn't want that? Who wouldn't want that? 